0: Justice, Illinois, Resurrection Cemetery, 1121 p.m. On a humid summer night on August 10th, 1976, the police got a frantic 911 call from a man who claimed he was driving past the cemetery gates when he saw a girl locked in after hours. A beautiful blonde in a flowing white dress, framed by moonlight in crisscrossed tree branches, she clung to the bars, weeping, begging to be let out. She seemed disoriented and confused. When the police arrived, they did a full sweep of the cemetery grounds with their flashlights, searching for the mysterious woman, but turned up nothing but tombstones shrouded in a ghostly fog. No trace of the young woman could be found. She had vanished into the fog like a ghost. However, in shining his flashlight around the gates, one of the police officers discovered something unsettling. When he shined his flashlight at the front cemetery gates, two of the bars had been pulled apart. Burned into the metal were the impressions of delicate handprints. The scorch burns had such clear marks in the green patina of the bronze, one could actually see the skin texture seared into the bars. These marks were made by human hands. The hands of a woman. Chicago is a city haunted by the ghostly memory of a beguiling young woman, with a frightening talent for resurrection.
1: Spooky? Do you think I'm
0: spooky? I told my mom I thought I saw a werewolf. And my mom believed me. I oh, don't like them putting chemicals in the water. They turn the friggin' frogs gay. Boom, serious crap. You think these people were eaten? My dog stepped on a bee.
1: <laughs> Unidentified flying objects. I think that fits the description pretty well. Haunted in the remains. He is dead,
0: but he has the power to move and kill.
1: She was bludgeoned to death with an axe. <laughs>
0: a giant hairy creature part ape part man
1: when i stand on the mountain and i say do it it gets done if it don't get done then i'll move on it and that's the last thing in the world you want me
0: and this is the spookies podcast
1: (laughs) this is michael
0: and i'm stephanie And welcome to a very special episode of the Spookies podcast. This is season four, episode two, The Half-Life of Resurrection Mary.
1: Our monster of the week.
0: More of a monster of the month at this point, I think.
1: So, since the beginning of this podcast, people have suggested we do an episode about (laughs) ghosts. It's called the Spookies. There should be an episode about (laughs) ghosts. There are just two problems with this. While I find the concept of ghosts interesting, they do not scare me.
0: Same. And
1: I didn't want to do an episode where we just recap a bunch of hauntings. You know, they saw a ghost here. They saw a ghost there. They saw a ghost everywhere. Boo. Scary. (laughs) Plenty of other podcasts do that sort of thing and do it well. Mm -hmm. Better than we ever could. I listen to some of those podcasts. There's a podcast called Astonishing Legends. I think they did eight hours on Resurrection. Mary.
0: Jesus Christ! Yeah,
1: I don't know how they did it, but they did it.
0: That's that's a lot,
1: and it was good. I listened to about four hours of it, and then I, I couldn't, you know,
0: couldn't do any more than that. But, <laughs> eight? Yeah, I in did one wh- go? I did four. They weren't like separate episodes. No, they were separate episodes. Oh, they're great. I love them. They're great.
1: But eight? Yeah, I would recommend checking that out. I am more interested in exploring the philosophical issues surrounding being dead and undead. Because, as we all know, I'm that pretentious and up my own ass. (laughs) I'm not afraid of ghosts. I'm afraid of becoming one.
0: Michael doesn't even believe in ghosts.
1: I am, however, fascinated by the phenomena of ghostly women in white. Hmm. I like the imagery associated with them.
0: Do so these ghostly women happen to look like Sydney Sweeney by chance?
1: No, but I like where you're going with this. <laughs> Resurrection Mary belongs to a subclassification of ghosts known as white ladies, a type of vengeful spirit.
0: Do white ladies harass black people at Target?
1: Yes, and they really love their pumpkin spice lattes.
0: <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding.
1: I love white ladies. I must. I married one.
0: (laughs) I'm the palest white lady you could find. She is
1: very pale. (laughs) She needs a tan. Get in the tanner.
0: (laughs) There's no tanning. It's it's called lobster. (laughs) Go back to being a redhead. (laughs) It's not happening. I I have no hair.
1: (laughs) The apparitions we are talking about tonight are called white ladies because they appear in white dresses or similar garments. Stories of these apparitions are often associated with local legends of tragedy such as an accidental death, a murder or suicide, and typically deal with themes of loss, betrayal by a man, or unrequited love. It's all very Victorian.
0: Mm -hmm. And white lady legends are found in many countries around the world. From Mexico, you have La Llorona, the weeping woman. The spirit of a doomed mother who drowned her own children in a fit of rage and spends eternity searching for them in rivers and lakes. From Ireland, you have the White Lady of Kinsale, Her apparition supposedly still haunts a castle in Ireland. She threw herself off the top of the castle after her father killed her husband. And from Texas, you have a frightening female apparition known as the Lady of the Lake. She is said to rest at the bottom of the lake during the day, her spectral form floating just beneath the boats overhead.
1: I just love that image. Pure nightmare (laughs) fuel.
0: (laughs) Or just floating corpse.
1: It's like Like what
0: lies beneath.
1: (laughs) It's like the cover of a Goosebump book. They had some good covers, whether you like those books or not. It
0: does sound like Bly Manor. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Is she coming out of that lake and uh, killing people?
1: I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when darkness falls, legend has it the lady claws her way onshore each night to haunt White Rock State Park. Ooh, see? That's even better.
1: Yeah, supposedly she is the ghost of a murder victim who was drowned in a lake. I'm assuming by men.
0: Uh huh. I mean,
1: lots of dead wet girls and ghost legends i've noticed water being an obvious symbol for menstruation
0: or uh vaginal secretions yeah you know horny i'm sorry i'm not trying to be gross but i'm being gross
1: well this is a gross episode (laughs) because you guys are gonna find out (laughs) ghosts are actually said to target women on their periods as well i just learned this the other day i have no idea what that means but i do find it interesting
0: (laughs) Well, in ancient times, menstruating women were considered sacred and powerful, with increased psychic abilities and strong enough to heal the sick, which is pretty fucking badass.
1: The force is strong with women on their periods. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have tonight's case, Resurrection Mary. (laughs) She who were dead yet liveth again. She has been called the most famous ghost in America.
0: Skeptics say she is nothing more than a localized version of the widespread vanishing hitchhiker myth. Believers claim she is a lost and lonely soul, trying to find a ride home, which is my personal belief. What intrigues
1: me about Resurrection Mary, when you read the accounts of the hauntings, Mm -hmm. is how tangible she is. Her ability to dance with the living and influence physical objects.
0: That's not common for... Ghosts, hence why we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's just not common for ghosts, especially for lay people, I will say, like non psychics, to see them and feel them and touch them. That's not common in any kind of I don't want to say literature, but just rec- accounts of ghosts and sightings. When,
1: when Stephanie talks about ghosts, it's like Neil deGrasse
0: Tyson. She's like, but actually, shut up. <laughs> This is the way the ghost would really act. No, I don't know everything about ghosts, okay? Because I am not really a medium. I'm kind of one, sort of. Well, what's interesting about... I'm a weak medium.
1: What's interesting about Resurrection Mary is there's a question that surrounds her. Mm -hmm. Is she a ghost? Is she a zombie? Is she something in between? It's like she isn't alive, but she isn't quite dead, which makes her perfect material for this podcast. (laughs) Tonight's episode is a narrative formed out of research, real eyewitness accounts, and myths and folklore about Resurrection Mary.
0: We thought the best way to talk about Resurrection Mary was to structure it as a narrative about what it means to be a ghost. When it comes to this case, you cannot separate the real history from the myth. It's impossible. The folklore is the history.
1: Stephanie and I wrote this episode together And I'm going to let her do the narration.
0: We want to use the legend of Resurrection Mary to tell a scary story about loneliness and the human condition.
1: And what could be more scary than loneliness, Mm -hmm. whether ghosts are real or not. I have always seen ghost stories as a way of making sense of the living. Now, I want to point out that what you're about to hear is our own unique take on Resurrection Mary. It's not the the actual Resurrection Mary, you know, <laughs> the factual accounts of the ghost lady.
0: <laughs> Which are a little dry. And no, stayed. it's
1: not that it's just I uh, there's so many discrepancies. Yeah. This is my problem when people say, "Well, the ghost wouldn't behave this way." There's so many contradictions and discrepancies.
0: Right. Because they're third-hand accounts being told third-hand, 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 like a well, game of telephone.
1: Resurrection Mary, without spoiling too much, is Out in the world, let's just say. Mm -hmm. But in the opening, you heard Stephanie narrating, uh, she's stuck in the cemetery, right? Mm -hmm. That's a real account. Yeah. She's stuck behind the bars. He's confused. Um, Look, we shamelessly use a framing device from a very beloved graphic novel movie slash TV show for this episode. I won't spoil it, but when you hear the music, you will probably go... Oh, I cannot believe they're doing this. (laughs) Well, guess what? We are doing this.
0: We wanted to put our own stamp on the legend, using both real history and our own imaginations.
1: And Stephanie is going to tell you a story, and that's it. (laughs) When the narrative reaches its conclusion, this episode of the pod is over. It's a ghost story. Mm -hmm. We will let you decide what we are trying to say about life and death. You are free to agree or disagree with our conclusions. I do want to issue a trigger warning. This story contains a brief mention of suicide and has some disturbing sexual content. Nothing too graphic. Um, We don't really show anybody getting raped or anything like that. Um, It's more implied than anything. We talk about some really nasty people. Yeah. But what this story does have is some really disgusting body horror. We fully embrace that. There are images in here that will hopefully linger in the mind long after you've listened to it if i've done my job if we have done our job Mm -hmm. you will remember this episode horror stories at least in our view should always feel uncomfortable transgressive Mm -hmm. this is the half-life of resurrection mary
0: there's a grain of truth at the heart of many myths and legends an untimely death or tragedy that causes a community to remember, to retell, and to eventually immortalize. About 20 minutes southwest of Chicago, in Cook County, there's a village called Justice. Home to Archer Avenue, it's a cursed piece of highway with a bloody history of violence, murders, disappearances, buried underneath a facade of civility. And if you take a drive down Archer Avenue, you'll pass by the old Resurrection Cemetery. Resurrection Cemetery is one of the largest cemeteries in the United States. The burial ground encompasses over 540 acres and is twice the size of the Brookfield Zoo. With over 152,000 graves, not counting the 5,300 crypts in the mausoleum, it is truly an enormous city of the dead. It's also believed to be haunted. The locals have nicknamed it the Resurrection Triangle due to all the unexplained events that have taken place over the years. It is 1939. Jerry Palace, a Chicago Southsider, meets a pale, mysterious woman in a white dress at a nearby dance hall, an attractive, blue-eyed blonde in her mid-twenties. Palace danced with her, and they even shared a kiss. As the night wore on, Jerry noticed that the woman's hands were unusually cold. The woman, in white, remained oddly quiet throughout the evening. She divulged very little information about herself, other than her name was Mary, and that she lived on the south side of Chicago. Jerry found himself too mesmerized by her beauty to care. Shortly before midnight, Mary asked for a ride home. She told Jerry her address, and he wrote it down they got in his car and headed north of Archer Avenue when they came within sight of Resurrection Cemetery. The lady in white ordered Jerry to stop suddenly and demanded he pull off to the side of the road near the cemetery gates. She climbed out of the car while warning Jerry not to follow her. He watched in his vehicle as the girl darted across the street where she ran up the road to the gates of the cemetery and then simply disappeared into the night. Jerry spent the next day haunted by the incident. He couldn't stop thinking about it. It was making him crazy. So he pulled up the note with the address on it and drove to the house where Mary had said that she lived. Pallas became confused when the woman who answered the door was old enough to be Mary's mother. When Jerry asked if he could see her daughter, she told him something that chilled him to the bone. Mary had been dead for years. She even took him inside and showed him a photograph of her daughter. Jerry Palace claimed the girl in the photo looked identical to the mysterious woman he met at the dance hall. Mary's mother added one final detail that deeply unsettled Jerry. Her daughter had been buried in Resurrection Cemetery. Jerry, who had once worked at a funeral home for a while, realized why Mary felt so cold to the touch. It was the touch of a corpse. And that's how the woman in white came to be known as Resurrection Mary. It is 1934, and Mary is in love. She is a beautiful blonde woman in her early 20s. She is at a dance with her fiancé at the O. Henry Ballroom located on Archer Avenue in Willow Springs, Illinois. Mary catches her fiancé kissing a teenage girl. She accuses him of chasing jailbait and breaks off her engagement by throwing the ring at him. Scorned by her lover, Mary storms out and started walking home alone in the dark, where she is struck and killed by a hit-and-run motorist and left to die in the cold on the side of the road. Her murderer never identified or brought to justice. Mary is laid to rest by her family in Resurrection Cemetery, in her favorite white gown. But death was not the end for Mary. Her story had only just begun. Because if you put Resurrection Mary in a coffin, she won't stay buried for long. Night had fallen on the cemetery, and a storm had arrived with a vengeance. Sheets of wind-blown rain strobed with lightning. A bolt of lightning strikes Mary's grave, causing a writhing mass of maggots to erupt out of the soil. The corpse worms generating a putrefied, heavily decayed being that screamed in painful agony. The agony of a human soul being resurrected. The maggots slowly coalesce into the shape of a naked young woman who shambles to life. Mary violently reborn into this world as a thing that should not be. A few days later, Witnesses began seeing a beautiful hitchhiker haunting stretches of road near Resurrection Cemetery. She only comes out at night, when the world is dark and the veil is thin. It is said she is so beautiful, men cannot resist offering her a ride. For nearly a century, dozens of men have come forward with eerily similar stories. Time and time again, they encounter a mysterious woman in a white dress, at dance halls around Chicago's South Side. They are captivated by her immediately and ask her to dance. She is described as cold, both physically and emotionally, her skin a lifeless, snowy white. She does not blink, does not eat, just holds a feral stare with intense eyes. A fly lands on her neck, crawling up over her face and eyeball, without her reacting to it. As the witching hour approaches, she asks for a ride home, giving vague directions to her escorts to drive north along Archer Avenue. Her night always begins the same way, playing out with minor variations. However, it more or less ends the same. Once they pass by Resurrection Cemetery, Mary screams at her dates to stop the car. So they pull over, and the ghostly woman tells the drivers Where I am going, you cannot follow." She then climbs out of the vehicle and takes off towards the cemetery gates, dematerializing before she ever makes it. Mary relives the trauma of her own death every night, only to be resurrected again and again. A type of residual haunting in which the restless spirit reenacts, over and over, the events of the moment they died. Mary always knows what's going to happen because nothing ever changes. All she had were time, years, decades, centuries, eons, lengths of time so vast that they are unfathomable for humans to try and comprehend. Mary's soul did not experience time as we do. Her entire perception of time had become nonlinear. One day, she saw someone being burned alive. They were phasing in and out of our reality. Mary closed her eyes and screamed. She smelled smoke and the nauseating aroma of burning human flesh. When she reopened her eyes, she found herself in a field. It is October 8, 1871. Mary sees a great fire as a Victorian Chicago burns to the ground. In the chaos, a young couple shared one last kiss. Dying in each other's arms, with a kiss that'll last forever. Their charred bodies fused together by extreme heat of the horrid conflagration. One-third of the entire city destroyed on that terrible day. There is a fringe theory that hauntings are windows through time. What we call ghosts are actually living people untethered from the collectively shared timeline we are all puppets. Mary was a puppet who just happened to see the strings. Her ghost would never have a career, fall in love, or get married. She watched as her friends and family grew old and died, while she remained left behind, stuck in a half-life, an eternal routine, no relief or respite, just emptiness forever. Because, as it turns out, being a ghost is boring, excruciatingly so. Mary's lost and lonely soul cursed to wander the void between two worlds. She sighs with longing and simmers with rage. Night after night, her vengeful spirit hoped sooner or later she might catch the man who killed her, a kind of purpose-driven immortality, one in which the purpose is never fulfilled. There are disturbing signs that Mary came back wrong. That perhaps both her body and soul came back, but the soul suffered some damage during resurrection. It is July 20th, 1969, and mankind has landed on the moon. Mary had returned to the cemetery from a night of dancing, when she noticed a man at one of the graves. The creepy guy had returned. Mary had always found him strange and annoying. He came to the cemetery almost every night to visit the grave of a murder victim. Mary thought the guy must be a relative, a father, a brother, or maybe a romantic partner. She watched him from the shadows, where she noticed something in his hand that disturbed her. A shovel. Peter Curtin, a tall, cadaverous man dressed like an undertaker, stood at a grave in the moonlit cemetery, letting the loneliness of the night fill him. He came to this burial ground often to visit the grave of a young woman named Rebecca Chambers. Sometimes he left flowers. Sometimes he would sing to her. He missed Rebecca, missed her smile. She was a pretty girl, and he had been obsessed with her since he first saw her at the bar. Rebecca belonged to him, not the worms. Even death couldn't take her away from him. For weeks, Peter Curtin had watched Rebecca from afar until he could no longer contain his dark urges. He remembered the look of absolute horror on her face, as he stabbed her to death in a Jack the Ripper-like frenzy. He had watched with diabolical satisfaction as the light went out of her eyes. And on this night, surrounded by fog and tombstones, Peter's thoughts turned dark. He had made his decision. The time had come. His shovel struck consecrated soil, and he began to dig, going deeper and deeper, until he reached the casket. And that stench. That repugnant stench. Peter Curtin had always wanted to violate a corpse. He started to unbutton his shirt, fantasizing about what he might do to Rebecca's remains. And that's when he saw... her. The hourglass shape of a woman in a white dress emerged out of the cemetery fog like a phantom. There was something unreal about her beauty, A sensual beauty of unbridled femininity. Supernaturally stunning. The mysterious woman made him forget all about Rebecca's rotting corpse. Peter got a strong, this chick is crazy vibe from the girl. But it wasn't enough to subvert the sudden urge to copulate coursing through his loins. The leggy blonde approached Peter. She gazed at him, her eerie blue eyes piercing. Put down your shovel and leave this place at once. Mary demanded with a look of disgust. Peter ignored her. He stripped off all his clothes. It was freezing, but he did not care. He would take her right here, right now, in the cemetery. If she resisted, he'd force himself upon her. Mary stared at his small, fully erect penis. She began to laugh. Her laughter took on a cruel, mocking tone. This enraged curtain He always hated it when women laughed at him. Peter Curtin wanted to strangle the bitch. He lunges at Mary and seizes her by the throat. She does not scream. She does not cry. Instead, she smiles. Even snakes smile before they bite you. Peter leans forward so that his face is only inches from hers. He whispered to Mary he is going to gut her like a pig, same as he did to that other bitch, Rebecca and points at the desecrated grave. To Peter's shock and horror, Mary's face suddenly took on a new form, transforming into a rotting, skeletonized zombie, her features decomposed and hideous. Curtin's erection instantly lost its steel. He released Mary, and his lust became terror. He took a step back, turned, and took off on foot, his walk quickening into a run. Don't you still want to kiss me? Mary hissed as she chased after him. Peter Curtin screams for help as he ran for his life in a deadly maze of tombstones and fog. He runs, but he won't get far. Mary leapt through the night air like a graveyard banshee and tackled Curtin to the ground. She bit off his left ear, and he wailed in agonizing pain, blood gushing from the wound. Trying to escape, Curtin reached for a rock and slammed it hard against Mary's head. Bloodied and battered, he regained his footing and staggered a few yards until Mary came shrieking at him again, knocking him down for the second time. She had him pinned, straddling his chest. Mary represented a primordial archetype, a type of sexually voracious woman that all men feared on an unconscious level. Not the mother of all humanity, but that of the Destroyer curtain looked up at Mary and was horrified that her face seemed to have taken on a feral quality, like one of Dracula's brides. Her teeth now rimmed with the fangs of a large jungle cat. Mary lifted a hand to strike curtain, and her nails extended into long, razor-sharp talons. She slashed his chest with her claws, crimson splashing across tombstones. Peter Curtin cries out for Satan to save him, but even the devil wanted nothing to do with the necrophilia. Resurrection Mary viciously and savagely ripped him to pieces in the moonlight, clawing, biting, tearing off pieces of him in bloody chunks. Mary did not quit mauling her prey even after Peter Curtin had stopped breathing. His eyes glazed over and his head lolled to the side. Finally, Mary crawled away from Peter, leaving his eviscerated body looking like the victim of a gruesome animal attack. For a fraction of a second, it felt almost euphoric. Then the reality of what she had just done struck Mary, and she unleashed a cry of horror and vomited. Mary had never taken a life before. Now she was a killer, a murderer. Covered in the blood of some indecent creature, dripping with it, her dress torn and stained with the gore of a necrophile and murderer. Mary never imagined she could bring herself to do such a thing. She hadn't intended to kill him. Tonight just got out of hand. She lost another piece of her innocence that night. She didn't even know his name. What bothered her the most is that, on some level, she had secretly enjoyed killing the bastard. She told herself she had done the world a favor. The man had been a murderer, a cold-blooded killer, a ghoul. He deserved to die, Mary told herself, completely deserved it. Mary buried Peter Curtin's body in the dark woods near the cemetery. No one would ever find his remains. Mary did not fear the police trying to pin the murder on a ghost. She had no reason to fear prison. Her soul was already trapped in one. Mary promised herself that she would never kill again, but promises are for the living. It is October 4th, 1977. Ben Williams did not believe in ghosts and was driving south on Archer Avenue around 8 p.m. Williams was a lonely young African-American man, a good man in a cruel world, with facial tumors that left him horribly disfigured. Think being black is hard in America? Try being both black and disfigured. Communal bonds are only for those who look and act the same. Ben had no friends. His neighbors nicknamed him Blobface, due to the severity of his deformities. They spread a false rumor around his apartment building that his disfigurement might be contagious. Although he had an IQ of 147, Ben worked as a janitor at a local high school. Too proud to accept disability, his hobbies were amateur astronomy, UFOs, and playing the piano. Abandoned by his birth parents 48 hours after he was born, because of his deformed face, Ben found himself in and out of foster care as a child. He practically raised himself. As he passed a local restaurant on Archer, Ben saw an attractive woman in a white dress standing on the side of the road, barefoot and ethereal. The moonlight shined upon her blonde hair in a way that made it particularly radiant. Although traumatized at the thought of meeting women, Ben stopped the car and asked if the woman needed a lift. The girl nodded and climbed in. Mary asked him to take her down Archer. He tried to draw her into conversation, cruising down the highway, but his passenger remained eerily quiet. My name is Ben. What's yours? He asked. Mary stares straight ahead and refuses to answer. He asked her if she had seen Star Wars. No response. Ben said to her, You know... You look like Resurrection Mary, but I know there's no such thing as Resurrection Mary. The strangeness of the situation made Mary smile to herself. She didn't dare let Ben see her smile. He tried to get her to accompany him to McDonald's for a milkshake. She continued to ignore him by staring straight ahead. The ghost wouldn't be drawn into conversation at all. Ben thought it odd the girl wouldn't look at him. He'd become accustomed to being stared at by others. Children crying when they saw him at the grocery store. being called a monster while walking his dog. Maybe he was so ugly, the girl couldn't stomach looking at him. At a stoplight near the main gates of the cemetery, Ben made one last attempt to get the mystery woman who was in his car to open up a bit. "'Are you afraid to talk to me because I'm ugly?' Ben asked. Mary turned in her seat, faced him, and softly said, "'I think you are a beautiful man.' She gently caressed his cheek with her right hand. Her touch might have felt like ice, but radiated a kindness he had never known. She then kissed him gently on the lips. That fleeting moment of affection, shared in the dark between two lost souls, felt morbidly transcendent for both. Mary asked Ben to take her to a secluded place, a place where they can talk. Ben told Mary he knew the perfect spot, They drove outside the city to an isolated field where Ben regularly went stargazing. There, under luminous moonlight, Mary and Ben spent the night together on top of his car, talking about the stars and the misery of their existence. Mary told Ben she is lonely, that she hates being around people, but needs them because she doesn't want to be alone. Ben muses that perhaps some souls are predestined to be alone, that maybe the lonely are born different from everyone else. We feel alone, he says, and in this we are connected. Mary's ghost tells Ben she does not like the dark, that she misses the warmth of the sun. Ben told her he likes the night. Without the night, we'd never see the stars. Ben observes that Mary seems sad. She tells him she forgot how to be happy, that her soul is slowly dying a very lonely death. When Ben woke up the next morning, Mary had mysteriously vanished. He never saw her again. Ben Williams spent the rest of his life bragging about going on a date with a ghost. It is Christmas night, 1985, and the cemetery is a gothic wonderland of snow. Loneliness wrapped around Mary like a death shroud. She wanted to scream and break things. She thought of Jerry and wondered whatever happened to him. Did he get married? Have children? She found herself dwelling on that night they met Wishing she had never gotten out of the car Her apparition roamed the cemetery Trying to find her parents' graves But she couldn't remember their names The faces of the living eventually all started to blur together Mary's ghost walked barefoot in the snow Her skin the same color as the blanket of melancholy She left no footprints The cold did not bother her She felt nothing. She stopped when she came across the graves of a mother and a baby who died together during childbirth in 1954. Helen Brzezinski and her son, Thomas. Someone had left a card, a teddy bear and flowers at the grave. A shrine of grief. Mary picks up the card and examines it. Winnie the Pooh and Tigger are on the front. The card reads, Gone from our sight, but never from our hearts she places it back on the grave. The dead flowers are frozen solid. Mary kneels down, removes one of the petals, and studies it with a hint of longing, wishing she were among the living, wishing her womb still had the power to create life. Mary's eyes are drawn to a folded blanket hanging off the headstone. Mary took the blanket, unfolded the cloth fabric, and draped it over the grave of the stillborn child as if she were his mother tucking him into bed i'm sorry this happened to you mary whispered to the dead she looked around at endless rows of graves half buried in snow mary had grown tired of this world tired of existing without purpose or meaning tired of the goddamn cemetery she wanted to leave this hell and never return she waited for things to change waited for something to happen, something that will make sense of it all, some kind of closure. Mary could feel herself slipping away, transforming into something monstrous. The 1970s and 80s saw a series of unexplained phantom accidents involving cars striking or nearly striking, a woman in a white dress outside resurrection cemetery some eyewitness accounts have her bolting in front of moving cars and screaming when the drivers stop to see if the woman they hit has been injured no body could be found some nights a ghostly woman wearing a white gown suddenly appears out of the fog she stands eerily still in the middle of the road and does not move right in the path of speeding automobiles the apparition has a white aura around her, almost as if giving off her own form of luminescence. The driver doesn't have enough time to stop and drives straight through her body as if she were translucent. When the motorist stops and looks into the rearview mirror, the woman in white has disappeared into thin air. These hauntings and incidents made Resurrection Mary something of a local celebrity the Media Circus drew unwanted attention to the cemetery. A horde of ghost hunters and paranormal investigators descended upon the cemetery, trying to find the grave of Resurrection Mary. It is 1987, and a full moon has appeared from behind rolling clouds, and the cemetery is bathed in a silvery light. Mary catches a man trying to steal her tombstone. He had discovered her true identity. Her ghost tried to scare the intruder away by materializing and screaming at him. Decades of rage and frustration came out in that scream. She screamed with such devastating force that the man's flesh peeled away and his soul was torn from his body, his skeleton collapsing into a wet, sticky pile of gore and bone fragments that shattered across the ground. Oh, fuck, Mary said as she gasped, and put her hand over her mouth, her eyes welling up with tears and horror. Mary found the dead man's wallet and examined its contents. His name was Joe Walsh, 39 years old, organ donor. She found a photo of him smiling with his wife and three kids. It occurred to Mary, with agonizing sorrow, that she had just destroyed a family. She spent the rest of the night picking up his remains and bury them in the woods by the cemetery next to the body of Peter Curtin. It was an accident, she kept telling herself. She hadn't really meant to kill him, had she? Mary had come to an awful realization that night. Her soul had begun to rot. It is December 31st, 1989. An older man named Patrick O'Sullivan picked up a blonde in a white dress near Resurrection Cemetery at sundown. She is beautiful, with that same otherworldly ethereal quality. She asked to be dropped off at a local dance hall. Patrick thought the girl was a sex worker. There was something inherently unpleasant about Patrick that Mary did not like. Unbeknownst to her, He was out on parole after having served five years for raping a 16-year-old girl. O'Sullivan liked to pick up teenage runaways, take them back to his house, chain them up in the basement, and watch them slowly starve to death. He tortured them with pruning shears and burned them with cigarettes. Mary gave Patrick the silent treatment, and under her perfume, he smelled something putrescent, something rotten. A fly landed on her face and crawled across her open eye. Her eyes were so blue, pale, incendiary blue. They drove for a few miles, and Patrick put his hand on Mary's thigh, her skin clammy and cold to the touch. He did not care. He continued fondling her leg. Mary gave him a look. She had that feral, yet beautiful stare in her eyes again. Patrick moves his hand up her leg. Mary asks him to stop. She slaps his hand away and warns him not to touch her. He ignored her warning. His hand drifted upward towards her crotch. Mary has had enough. She faces the passenger side window, lifts her right hand, and her nails extend into talons. In one swift motion, she turned towards Patrick, stabbing him in the groin with her claws, impaling his testicles. Patrick screams in terrible pain, a pain like no other. There's blood everywhere. Mary yanked at the steering wheel, causing the car to slam head-on into a concrete wall at over 90 miles per hour. When police arrived minutes later, they found Patrick O'Sullivan's body still strapped to the driver's seat in the twisted wreckage. His head, however was no longer attached to it. Police located Patrick's head almost 50 feet away from the crash. The severed head bisected in two, sort of cleaved, and then smashed into hamburger. Police were shocked to discover the steering wheel missing from the car. In the words of one first responder, it looked like it had been torn off. It wasn't the only thing missing. Patrick O'Sullivan's phantom killer had also vanished. It could not be located. The medical examiner found some kind of claw embedded in O'Sullivan's groin during the autopsy. He had it analyzed. It contained nothing organic or inorganic. Scientifically speaking, the claw did not exist. Sightings of Mary trailed off in the 1990s and early aughts and when she did reappear, her behavior became more erratic and incoherent, further signs of her crippling loneliness. Manifesting herself in the backseat of men's automobiles while they are stopped at red lights on Archer Avenue, appearing as a translucent woman in a decrepit white gown, frightening innocent people and causing a jump scare. Mary just wanted a friend, but all they saw was a monster. Over time, Mary came to despise men. They only saw her as a whore. They were corporeal parasites, bleeding her dry like vampires. Men saw only what they wanted to see. Mary, on the other hand, saw inside the souls of every living thing. She saw the evil that men do. It is November 9, 2016. Britain has exited the European Union and Donald Trump has been elected the 45th President of the United States. The O. Henry Ballroom, which had been renamed the Willowbrick Ballroom, was burned to the ground. Mary's ghost stands in the smoldering rubble late one night, knowing she would never dance there again. Mary reminisces about Jerry and all that could have been. She regrets getting out of his car that night so long ago, wishing they had more time together, One last dance. She tries to console herself by going to a karaoke bar and singing along to Long Long Time by Linda Ronstadt. It does not go well. It is August 3rd, 2020 and nightfall brings evil things. Mary watched through the cemetery gates as a white cop pulled over an elderly black man for a broken taillight. In the 21st century, Mary spent more and more of her time alone, observing and watching the living go about their lives with a cold detachment. The cop, a gung-ho shitheel, drew his gun and ordered the terrified driver out of the car. Mary gasped when the old man got out, and she recognized him from his facial deformities. It was Ben. Ben Williams. Shit, Mary thought. He threw his hands up and begged for the officer not to shoot. The cop called him an ugly son of a bitch, and that his mother should have aborted him. Williams panicked. He turned and ran, and Officer Night Racist shot him twice in the back. Mary watched with tears welling up in her eyes, as Ben bled out in the street and died. The image of Ben being gunned down in cold blood haunted her. She couldn't get it out of her head. Mary knew that a live body and a dead body contained the same number of particles, so atomically, the living and the dead were the same. She struggled to care about the living these days. This was different. She knew Ben. He was a good man, a good soul. She liked him. She could have stopped his murder from happening. She had refused to intervene, and that deeply disturbed her. Failed. She had failed Ben. Mary knew she shouldn't want to kill people, but all she could think about was killing that cop. And as she stood there alone in the cemetery, she knew she would do it. Officer Knight Racist had made a grave mistake, because the Knight belongs to Resurrection Mary. It is October 31st, 2020, Halloween. An ominous full moon looms large in the night sky. A warning to all cops that no one's going to save them from all the ghouls and witches running wild on the streets. Officer Night Racist is out on patrol. He has been cleared of any wrongdoing in the shooting death of Benjamin Williams. He is 30 years old, Caucasian. His boomer parents always told him he was special and he believed them, a legend in his own mind. He needed to get laid. Getting away with murder had made him very horny, and he did not want to have intercourse with that fat pig he had married. The patrol car turns left onto Archer Avenue, and Officer Knight Racist noticed a young woman in a white dress walking down the road in the dark. Blonde, with big tits, a stone-cold fox. Nothing less than breathtaking. Sexy in that classy sort of way. He wanted her pregnant with all of his children, barefoot and pregnant. The girl kind of looked like that one actress from his favorite TV show, Schitt's Creek, Annie something. He pulled over to the curb, introduces himself as officer Mike Vanderbilt and asks the girl if she needed a lift. Mary smiled seductively at the cop and says in an alluring voice, I really don't want to be alone tonight. Know of a good motel in the area? I'll do things with you no one has ever done. Later that night, in a dimly lit motel room, Mary and Officer Vanderbilt tumble apart, out of breath. They are both naked and in bed together. Damn, that was incredible, Vanderbilt said. Mary says nothing. She just gets up and puts on her dress. She stands in the shadows, staring at Officer Vanderbilt. Why aren't you saying anything? You're freaking me out, Vanderbilt said. Mary doesn't move. Doesn't blink. She remains unnaturally still, her eyes fixed on him with a cold, feral stare, half of her face covered in darkness. Vanderbilt coughs, then again. Alternating between coughs and gagging, something is wrong. He cannot stop coughing. His lungs are on fire. What the hell did you do to me? Vanderbilt snarled. His voice reached a new level of shrillness with each word. You hear me? Answer me, bitch. Mary says nothing. She does not move. She stands there like a corpse. Lifeless. Watching him. Her face expressionless. Vanderbilt begins to disturbingly twitch in the bed. A racking series of violent convulsions as he felt things crawling around inside his groin. Officer Vanderbilt began vomiting up a disgusting mixture of dark blood, maggots, and entrails. He starts screaming as his entire body begins to rapidly decompose, peeling away from his skeleton, having been impregnated by the ravenous corpse worms in Mary's vaginal secretions. Vanderbilt clutched his face, and the skin melted off into putrefied ooze, exposing the skull and muscles beneath. With every cell in his body under attack, his tissues and bones break down disintegrating into a kind of festering sludge, a sickening metamorphosis. Vanderbilt's maggot-ridden body crawls towards Mary as his flesh melts off, desperately reaching out with bony fingers for her to help him. She ignores him. She is here for the horror show. Mary sits on the edge of the bed, listening to the ongoing howls of agony calmly watching Vanderbilt's body be ravaged from within by the corrosive infestation. A fly lands near her lips and crawls into her mouth. Mary smiles at Vanderbilt with murderous glee. He is dying, his body fighting a losing battle against the crawling infestation eating away at his skin, bones, and internal organs. His screams faded into a wet gurgle. Vanderbilt twisted and thrashed in the bed vomiting uncontrollably as his rotting body collapses. His eyes liquefied into pus, and a swarm of flies exploded from the empty sockets. Officer Vanderbilt's last moments were spent being devoured alive, his insides dissolving into a revolting soup of gore and creepy crawlies. A six-foot-two, 250-pound man reduced to 37 pounds of necrotic, decaying matter. Resurrection Mary walked over to what was left of Officer Vanderbilt, and fished his skull out of the unrecognizable remains. As she studied the rotting skull, bursting with maggots, Mary began to sing. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, and one little worm who's not so shy climbs in your ear and out your eye. She then tossed the dreadful thing on the floor, and smashed it with her bare foot, Mary extended her index finger into a claw and dipped it into the steaming, repulsive puddle on the bed. When the police entered the room the next day, the words, For Ben, were written in the bodily fluids of Officer Mike Vanderbilt above the bed. The medical examiner ruled the cause of Mike Vanderbilt's death as undetermined. Whatever killed him, so corrosive it ate through the medical waste bucket in the morgue, Mary felt no guilt for what she had done. She felt nothing, nothing at all. It is April 29th, 2025, and Mary no longer believed in God. If God exists, either he can do nothing to end Mary's miserable existence, or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. Mary's condition had deteriorated. She couldn't quite remember when it started, but she seemed to be fading away. She found herself now invisible to the living and unable to communicate with them. They could no longer see her, no longer hear her, not even the so called psychics. When she tried to engage a person in conversation, they always ignored her. It's like they had no awareness of her existence. She could hear everybody but they couldn't hear her. Her soul had started to decay, both mentally and spiritually by the crushing loneliness of being caught in a half-life. She now existed only as a diminished thing that embodied existential despair. It is November 4th, 2036. Attila the Pun, an alt-right YouTuber, is elected president on a platform of anime and isolationism. Mary tries to kill herself by jumping off a bridge, and all she gets is wet. The doomsday clock inches closer to midnight. The passage of time had made Mary feel obsolete. She was an analog soul in a digital world, a world she no longer recognized. Mary wondered what had happened to dancing. It had all but vanished from society. Now humans just watched videos of other humans dancing badly on screens that seemed glued to their hands. Mary had come to a depressing observation about human relationships during her half-life. When you first meet someone, they are charmed by your gimmicks and bag of tricks. But over time, these things become mundane, and they grow bored, and you are alone again. Resurrection Mary's bag of tricks had grown stale, Americans no longer believed in ghosts, or UFOs, or Bigfoot. What they did believe in were conspiracy theories and demons. The internet had convinced them devils were around every corner coming for their children. It is August 25th, 2050, and humanity is at a crossroads. The world is rapidly approaching a precipice of dangerous instability. The dominant political ideology is right wing populism. The global economy has collapsed. Money now concentrated in a shrinking upper class. The internet has completely eroded social cohesion. Resurrection Mary tried to scare the shit out of everyone she encountered. Nothing worked. No one had even noticed. They were too lost in the grotesque fantasy of social media to care. The internet had become the reality. The only way Mary could get a reaction out of others is if she broke their phones, which only made them go and buy another one. The more isolated people became from one another, the more dependent they were on their phones, always sitting alone in the dark, staring at a glowing screen. Their intellects weakened by conspiracy theory brain rot, Eventually, the technology progressed to where humans merged entirely with the digital realm and were permanently online. The phones were no longer needed. Mary finally gave up. She became so lonely, she started having conversations with herself. She would stare at her reflection and talk to it like they were her friend. It was pretty damn depressing, and Mary could not remember having ever felt so alone and abandoned. They didn't even know she existed. She herself had started to doubt whether or not she existed anymore. She felt totally cut off from the world. This was bottom, Mary thought. This was hell. There was no way things could get worse than this. But of course, she was wrong. It is June 19th, 2074, and Mary sees fire in the night. She hears screaming and the sound of a blaring siren. The sound of the end of the civilized world. One moment there's peace, and the next moment there's war. Somehow Mary always sensed it all ended in fire. Mary had a front row seat to the end of history. A developer has built a high-rise on top of Resurrection Cemetery. The contractors didn't bother relocating the graves. Her ghost stood on the roof watching as the bombs detonated. A flash... A boom, then a sustained roar. Out of the darkness emerged a towering wall of flame, thousands of feet high, obliterating everything in its path. Humans, animals, life as we know it, all vaporized to dust in the global annihilation of nuclear holocaust. Those that died when the bombs dropped were the fortunate ones. The rest of life on Earth gradually froze and starved to death. Mary watched the mushroom cloud rushing towards her, and in that moment, she realized she didn't want to die. Her body had never accepted her death, and her mind remained in the past. She had hoped someday she might wake up from this nightmare, that it was all a terrible dream. She closed her eyes and screamed. Mary suddenly had a falling sensation, slipping away towards a tunnel of light. Everything faded to black, And then, there was only the void. There, in the lonely dark, Mary's ghost had a vision of herself dancing in Resurrection Cemetery, spiraling across time and space with each step. It is 40,000 BCE. The course of human evolution is changed forever when the peaceful and intelligent Neanderthals are driven to extinction by a more violent and savage species, Homo sapiens. It is July 20th, 1942, a mysterious man calling himself the Count of St. Germain meets with Dr. Robert Oppenheimer at Bohemian Grove. He warns him not to join the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer ignores his advice. It is 13,400 BCE. The lost city of Atlantis sinks into the ocean following the invention of social media, a creation that led to the fall of many civilizations on countless worlds. Eventually, Mary's ghost witnessed the event that inevitably led to her own murder, the invention of the wheel in the fourth millennium BC in ancient Mesopotamia. Mary saw herself dying alone in the cold after being struck by a car. She watched herself die again and again and again. This went on and on and on for what seemed like an incomprehensible amount of time. After eons of loneliness, She finally understood that it wasn't the car that killed her. She had died angry of a broken heart. Mary awoke screaming in the dark, her body trembling and damp with a cold sweat. She had no idea where she was or how she had gotten there. Her white gown soiled with mud, She staggered to her feet, shrouded in a ghostly fog. Where was she? How did she get here? The last thing Mary remembered was floating in an empty void and falling into oblivion. Did that even happen? Or had it all been a nightmare? Is she a woman dreaming she's a ghost? Or a ghost dreaming she's a woman? Mary shambled around in the dark, filled with both elation and uncertainty. She smelled a foul odor that seemed strangely familiar to her, the scent of decaying human flesh. A fly lands on her cheek and crawls across her ashen face. Pale moonlight filtered down through the midnight fog, illuminating tombstones, markers, and a mausoleum. Mary came to an unsettling realization, a heartbreaking realization. It is August 10th, 1976. She is back in Resurrection Cemetery. Mary has lived this moment countless times before. She is now reliving it again. Confused and disoriented, she bangs on the cemetery gates begging for someone to let her out, her eyes wild and haunted, with mascara running down her cheeks. A motorist driving by calls the police and reports a woman being locked in the cemetery after hours. As she screams for help, Mary's ghost sees a set of disturbing reverberations. Mankind harnessing the power of the atom. The rise of the internet. Planes crashing into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. The end of our collectively shared reality. Human brains being warped and twisted by their phones. In one final vision, Mary sees nuclear bombs ripple across the Earth's surface. First a few... Then dozens. Then hundreds. She screams in horror as she watches the globe slowly being devoured by fire. Mary's expression, one of utter hopelessness and existential despair. Her tortured soul condemned to watch humanity destroy itself over and over again for all of eternity. She cannot live. She cannot die. There is no escape the arc of history a runaway train to hell and she its doomed, unwilling passenger. Mary can hear the train coming, loud, unrelenting, inevitable. Her consciousness caught in a seemingly endless loop of time and aware of everything that is happening and going to happen, while everyone else does not. Mary's refusal to let go and move on had come at a price her ghost now trapped in a never-ending cycle of destruction and rebirth to suffer a fate far worse than death, the half-life of Resurrection Mary.